You're listening to Design Talk, a podcast for conversations connecting design with theory, organizations, business, and impact. We're delighted to have Fergal O'Reilly with us today. Fergal is an adjunct professor and uh, research and innovation officer in the UCD School of Physics with a career that spans experimental physics, innovation, entrepreneurship, and new venture formation. Could you tell us a little more about yourself and your background to begin? Um, okay, I, I don't know how long or short this would take, but um, so I started off uh, after school doing commerce at night um, because my twin was doing commerce and I didn't have a brain of my own. And then somebody in the class said they were going to go and do science. And I said, okay, that sounds like a good idea. Um, because it sounded better than working. Um, so I went off and did science to do chemistry and didn't like chemistry, ended up doing physics because the community there was very nice, it was just really nice people. Um, not that chemists aren't nice, I'm married to one now. Yeah, um, ended up doing physics, ended up doing a PhD in physics, looking at tiny little million degree fireballs, about a tenth the size of a, a hair diameter, um, that we produce using lasers. We fire high power lasers onto a surface and make these little fireballs just to look at them. And it turned out that they produce a type of x-rays that are also useful for imaging and patterning and stuff like that. These x-rays are used by Intel in their new fabs out in Leakslip um, in what's called EUV lithography. And we're using them now in a startup called Sirius XT in Sandyford, um, which there's a few jumps there. Um, but, but yeah, so I, I did a PhD. I went off and I worked um, in two startup companies and saw some of the chaos that exists in the startup world, some of the difficulties and challenges, um, came back to work in academia with the idea of applying some of my externally gained startup knowledge um, to some of the more fundamental research that was going on to see if we could find a place for that and started the process of trying to see if we could commercialize our research. And that's where looking at the x-rays we were producing and looking at potential applications, we started first looking at um, semiconductor processing applications found that was impossible and moved on to um, uh, a market which we thought was more tractable, which was looking at biological cell imaging using these x-rays that we produce. So we, we produce new optics that make it easier to focus the, the x-rays that allow us to do imaging more easily and more cheaply. And the, 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 the problem is, the problem we're trying to solve is that Biologists can't see inside in cells. The, the details are, are so small inside in the cells that they can't use optical microscopes to look at them. And there's a huge amount going on in there. Uh, they're beautiful little machines. and uh, They know there's a lot of interesting stuff, but they just can't see it. It's tantalizing. And so what we do forms a part of uh, windows into this um, nano-biological world that makes up all of us. Okay, so that's touched on a lot. There's a lot of detail there that is difficult to convey, in a sense, how that happens, because it seems natural research goes into industry. Well, I suppose a lot of the time it doesn't. Um, um, and I, I, I went back to work with a research group that really was just interested in looking at quantum mechanical calculations of the tin atom and understanding what happens when you take off 8 to 12 electrons, which most people don't find particularly interesting, and you'd think that it wouldn't be so interesting to industry either. Um, that is interesting to industry because it, it's fundamental to their efforts to try and produce light sources to make really expensive photocopiers that print silicon wafers. Um, so did you have to find that use case for I, this particular he, narrow... I, I, I didn't, but that was... So the prof in the group, Jerry O'Sullivan, who you know, was one of the... On the at, the at the vanguard of, of figuring out uh, that this particular material would allow you to produce this type of light and would allow you to make these types of what are essentially photocopiers that cost 200 million euro. So actually, we might come back to my 
puzzle as to how the translation occurs. So, so in that case, the fundamental drive was from the semiconductor industry who were looking for a solution to a problem that they had. And our role was at a very basic fundamental research level, and we got significant support from Intel and from others um, to help to try to start to unpeel some of the scientific difficulties that are there. But we were never really involved in any translation itself. We were just at the, on the science side. Right, so that's like um, an industry partner comes into the university, partners up with uh, a research group, and they gain the benefit of the research, the primary research that you're doing. That, that's one model. Yeah, I mean, they weren't even partnering there. They, were just, they just gave us money. Uh, and they said, we're interested in this general area. And so that was through contacts that Pori Dunn, another member of our group, had with Intel. And so I, I should say I work with a group of uh, five other uh, principal investigators, researchers, and academics, and a whole lot of um, PhD students, about, depending on time, is between maybe eight and 15 PhD students and some postdocs. So I'm, I'm part of a, a bigger group. And, and we all have different kind of connections. Um, so Pori had connections into Intel. Intel were happy because they knew him and they were comfortable with him to give him money on a no uh, strings basis, just say we're interested in this general area. There's there's some funds to go and start on to the understanding that the research would, would be published would, would be published and, and and may be useful to them. Okay, so let's touch on X-ray imaging of cells. So I came back to UCD in 2005, um, and I started started to look at commercial applications of the work that we were doing. And initially, I was looking at making light sources that might be useful to the semiconductor industry. But it became obvious that there are only two customers that could potentially buy it. And so there was no real way for us to do anything. And they would never buy off a startup company. Um, so there was no way for us to develop any real commercial output from that. That realization wasn't immediate. That realization took between about 2006 and 2011 and about 1.5 million euro of Enterprise Ireland funding. So in that time, we developed a lot of the base technology on light sources and developed our understanding of the market to the point that we realized that it wasn't really for us. Um, so Enterprise Ireland invested significantly in us um, because they were comfortable with the group. And I think comfort is a big word in all of this, actually. That uh, They were comfortable um, with our group because SFI had funded our group um, to do some of the semiconductor-related uh, research. Um, and SFI were comfortable with our group because N Intel had been sufficiently comfortable to give us money. And this... this a virtuous circle of, uh, of funders being happy to work with people who they see being uh, funded by other people. Um, so Enterprise Ireland were sufficiently uh, happy with the general um, way the, the group was, was working, um, and they were happy with the efforts that we were making to try and commercialize, that they continued to support us. Um, until the point we came to a pivot, when we realized, okay, we can't do this, uh, there were two other, two other co-founders of, of Sirius XT, the technical co-founders. There was myself, Ken Fahey, and, and Paul Sheridan. Uh, and they were employed on postdoc contracts in UCD. Um, and so they had a strong incentive um, to develop something commercial out of this. We, we went back after 2011, after we realized we couldn't make a semiconductor product. And we went back and we started to look around the market of what we could, what could we do with our light source technology. We went back and we, we picked up the phone and talked to a lot of people. We talked to a lot of people, at, uh, particularly at synchrotrons. Now, a synchrotron is a, a football stadium-sized light source that costs about a billion euro. And there are about 30 or 40 of them in the world. Um, so you can do the micros microscopy that we do if you have a billion euro and a football stadium-sized light source. Um, 
or at least that was the case before you came exactly, along. Exactly, exactly. So that, so that, so, so we looked at the applications. So these light sources produce these types of X-rays, amongst other types, but they produce the types of X-rays that we can produce from our tiny little fireballs. Um, we can do it in a in a system that's um, tabletop, more or less. Um, and so we could reduce we could reduce the size um, by um, a factor of a million in volume and reduce the um, the total costs by a factor of a thousand or there. So removing the synchrotron from the, or at least having a, an analog of a similar source in a small form factor. Yeah, exactly. That doesn't do everything the other one does, but that does enough of it to, to make it viable for biologists. Because biologists don't care what, what the light source is, they just want the images. They want to press a button and, and see an image. So I was going to ask if a science-driven venture needed to have a singular design concept, um, even though it's complex, multidisciplinary, complicated. And I can see that you did have a singular design concept in the foundational science. Yeah. And for the first phase, you also had a singular view of its potential application to a market, which was proved false. You pivot, and now you have to come up with another kind of, kind of concept, a, a Yes, exactly. So uh, in order to justify continued efforts in commercialization, we had a, we had a light source. Lots of people produce viable light sources um, and people spend huge amounts of money producing them to find out that they don't actually have an application that's useful. Um, and there's a history is lit littered with, with that. Um, uh, and so we wanted to go back and find out, was there going to be a, a pull uh, from the market on something that we could make? So we spoke to the biologists who would be the end users of this to really try and find out if they would be prepared to spend money on um, on this type of uh, microscopy, if, if, if it was some, something that would, um, would sufficiently interest them to make it into an actual market. So Cirrus XT um, is somewhat of an exception to the scientific sort of discovery pathway in a sense, in terms of, um, it's it's got some core science. So you want to build an uh, uh, the, the vehicle that commercializes this scientific discovery, but of course, Cirrus XT isn't just um, X-ray sources, is it? You have to build out a company. Yeah, and actually, that's a problem with with a lot of hardware companies uh, that you end up developing something interesting that's only a part of something bigger. Um, and so we have to develop an entire microscope. Um, and an entire imaging system, and uh, we have to develop uh, the technology to be able to manage the cells and deal with them, all that kind of stuff. So there's a huge span of engineering, physics, biology, um, uh, analysis, uh, and then there's the business side, obviously, uh, on how do, we, um, how do we push that in the market and how do, we, how do we get investment into it in the first place. So in terms of building that out, uh, how would you approach that? Um, would you bring people in, or would you subcontract out the work? We uh, we did most of it ourselves, um, and I think to begin with, we naively assumed we could do it more easily and more cheaply than we could. Um, it would have been difficult to outsource. Um, it would have been, I think, difficult to outsource. There were too many unknowns, um, too many questions. There wasn't an off-the-shelf uh, X-ray microscopy kit that we could just uh, go and ask somebody to make for us. Um, so give us a sketch of the team size and sort of competencies that you have at this early stage, possibly around that inflection point between pivoting from 
silicon to sell the other? Oh, at that point, that was just three physicists. Okay. Um, so that realized... Just three physicists. Okay, so you realized at, at that point you're still in the lab. You're, you're, yeah. So um, we, we had a functioning light source. Okay. Okay, then we pivot. We, th- we think well, we're going to go life sciences. We, how long did that last as a three, three physicists sort of team? Um, we got some funding from Enterprise Ireland at that point that brought us through to about 2014, 2015. Um, so it was that long. Okay. Um, so we, we, had, we took on uh, another physicist yeah. in, in the meantime because it really was um, fundamental light source work that we were doing. Um, and it was only in 2015 that we got introduced to the now CEO, Tony McEnroe, um, and at that point, we were able to raise enough money to start building out the team to include more uh, on the engineering side. Okay. And when you talk about engineering, you're talking about physical engineering and also the software that runs the thing. Yeah, exactly. So those yeah. specialisms. Yeah. Um, biologists, microbiologists? Biologists, not to begin with. Um, we had, yes, we had a, an, um, a biophysicist um, working with us. So we were developing collaborations and developing imaging collaborations with the Conway Institute and UCD. Uh, uh, they do, they're interested in cell imaging as well and usefully local, um, and they were interested. And so we did have a biophysicist working part-time with them, but m- most of the company... Um, which is about 20 people, are physicists and engineers. Okay, okay. Um, So maybe about half and half now at this stage between physicists and engineers. If you had to pivot again, how much of what you've built is retaskable? Because you're you're developing new specialisms too, the tomography, the the sort of CAT scan capability of the images themselves, um, the mechanisms that you use for the, the packaging... I hadn't really thought about that. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Um, not currently, no. Not, yeah. no. Um, there are other markets that we can look at in terms of uh, the microscopy side of things. I haven't looked further than that. Yeah, Yeah. no. You, well, you, you caught me there. I did, I did. <laughs> I, I threw that one as a wildie. Yeah, because um, yeah, over... I'm just thinking in terms of over the years, you've developed these sort of core competencies, this sort of knowledge and expertise... Yeah. And, and you're growing, that's growing all the time. You, you've got a, a whole team and all with different specialisms now working together. How much domain crossover is necessary to work in a, a sort of this STEM-rich environment? Do the, your programmers and your machine, your, your mechanical engineers need to understand the fundamental science? They need to understand, they need to understand some of the, some of us, yeah, they do. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, I mean, for example, uh, we make, the, like I said, these little um, million-degree fireballs. So understanding the details of what's happening in there, they don't really need to know in a sense that it's overall power coming from that that's important. So it's only 100 watts. So um, that's, that's the interesting bit for an engineer, for example. Uh, they don't need to understand the minute details of everything, and, um, and we don't need to understand the minute details of every bearing that goes into the system either. Um, so we can separate out quite a bit, I suppose. Um, and you couldn't possibly, you couldn't try to uh, get your head around all of it. There's just a lot in it. Um, talk to me a little about the business expertise that's required. You, you started off looking at business as a specialism, I suppose, way back. But um, have you had to train yourself up or do you bring ex- outside expertise in? We were well aware that we needed to bring outside expertise in. And I think that was um, that was something useful in our in our characters. We understood that we weren't going to be able to do it. 
Um, and we went to look for potential partners. Um, and actually, the, the CEO that we currently have now was suggested to us just as somebody to bounce our ideas off by one of the VCs that we talked to. Um, so, um, so they suggested talking to him. Um, he talked to us and was very interested in what we had to say. And just by serendipity, he was at a point in his life where um, he was interested in, in the challenge. And he took it up, and he's great. Um, and so, yeah, he's, he's been able to drive. Without him, we wouldn't have gone anywhere. Okay. Um, so we wouldn't, we wouldn't have got off first base. It wouldn't, nothing would have happened. Talk to us about the institutional support for these endeavours. Uh, so you, from the university to national agencies and the EU. So how does that all work? Okay, so uh, from an institutional point of view, there's a technology transfer office, which was very useful to us. They run things like the Campus Company Development Programme and they have boot camp, uh, uh, commercialization boot camp as well, which introduces people from a science background to stuff that you probably just take for granted, right? Um, so And possibly gives them uh, introductions or meet, they get to meet some of the, the, the business-focused people. Yes, we did, yeah, we did. Uh, and we got, we got to have some discussions there. Um, the interface is still kind of very difficult, I think. It's still um, very difficult to know where you're going, or it was for us anyway. So that, that was very useful at an early stage from, for us from UCD, and they continue to support us as well um, through things like the, the patenting process um, and um, licensing, all that kind of stuff. Because intellectual property is kind of at the heart of your business. Yes, um, and, and, and the university owns the IP that we produce in the university, and the university licenses that to startups, um, and the university generally maintains a share in, in the startup, startups as well. So it's, it's something that the university has a vested interest in, so they make some effort in it. Um, and having a, a comfortable relationship with the TTO, with the tra Technology Transfer Office, is important, um, because obviously they have relationships then with people like Enterprise Ireland, and Enterprise Ireland are um, the primary funders for this type of commercialization activity in Ireland at an early stage. So you can get grants of up to about a half a million euro uh, over a couple of years uh, for a, tech, a technology based or at least a protectable um, uh, high potential startup uh, um, unit company that, that, that you, or, or for something that, that can build into that. So, so there, there is there's reasonably uh, useful amounts of money available through Enterprise Ireland, but they have to be comfortable with you. You have to be able to convince them that you have a potential uh, product and market. Um, and then, so, so Enterprise Ireland are very important in that sense. Enterprise Ireland have commercialization specialists that we work with, uh, and they come out and they, they're, they're, they're quite critical of what we do. They come out and, and, and they, they pour cold water on what we do regularly in a way that's very useful, um, because we have to go back then and reflect and go, okay, um, that really doesn't have a market. Um, we, we've, got to, we've got to work out something better there. Um, and, um, yeah, so we've, we've had a continued relationship with them. Um, and so they supported us up through, like I said, from about 2006 to about 2014. We were largely supported by Enterprise Ireland through various different schemes. That's um, myself and, and the two other co-founders of the, of the company. The group, the, the broader research group was drawing funding from, from other places as well. After we started the company, Enterprise Ireland continued to support by being a co-investor. Um, we got um, some angel funding and some, um, some local VC seed funding as well. Um, and then just again through serendipity, uh, within a couple of months of starting the company, 
the European Investment Innovation Council, or it was the SME fund at the time, I think, um, uh, made a call for cell imaging systems, which they, where they were prepared to fund up to three million euro uh, with a 25% um, indirect costs, so that's whatever that is, um, uh, 3.7 million euro. Um, uh, and um, it was specifically directed for people in cell imaging. So of all the things they could have asked for um, in Europe at that time, in those months, they didn't. They asked for the thing that we just started. Um, and so we were able to go and try and get that funding. We failed the first time. And on the second and last call for that, we got the money. And so that changed what way we were able to do things. We had a vision of being able to get to a market which, with much lower levels of funding than we originally um, or than we actually needed. And I, didn't, I don't think that's unusual for a startup. I think that's, um, yeah. So we were able to get, get more funding through that. And subsequently, in total, um, through EIC um, accelerator funding uh, and other grants from the European Union, we've, I think we've raised about 7 million euro in grants and about 7 million euro in, um, in equity. That's interesting that the um, there's two businesses need equity to grow, to develop. Um, you've tapped into both uh, state supports and, and agency kind of gifts, essentially, mm. and the, the venture market. Um, the I, I should I should say on that that I mean it was obvious to us that we were going to do that we were going to, we were going to need to do that I remember being at a an investment conference in Bordeaux in 2014 and there were a few VCs talking and all of them said you can't start a hardware business without getting grant funding that um, in, VCs won't do it it's too high risk um, that they're putting most of their money into software I think you've heard that story yeah before, I've heard right? that story yeah yeah. Um, so it, our, our chase of that type of grant funding was deliberate because it was necessary. Uh, and we knew we were going to be doing that at the start. It must be tricky to ma manage the balance between a virtuous cycle of investment versus a kind of um, uh, rent-seeking investment. So the, these in early-stage investors are definitely trying to, like the university itself and EI, they're trying to create a virtuous um, uh, I suppose, yeah, a virtuous cycle uh, where the investment goes in, creates more value, the firm becomes much more valuable. You're not, as, as, a, as, as the founder, they don't want to dilute you out of the business, do they? Um, no, I don't think so, no. Um, and, and yeah, we've been, um, we've been very lucky with the investors that we've had so far, and we've been lucky with the funding that we've been able to raise. I suppose we would end up being diluted out if there wasn't the possibility of getting the type of grant funding that we were able to get. Um, I'm just thinking that as I'm saying it now. Um, uh, but no, I mean, obviously the investors have a vested interest in the founders maintaining an interest in the company sufficient uh, to drive the company forward, yeah. When, if ever, should founders bring in the next generation of leadership? You've kind of made a step in that, uh, that direction already. Mm -hmm. um, that has, I suppose, does that occur across the board within the firm? Would, would all the founders at some, at some level move to the board and have their sort of operating teams now doing the application? We're, we're not at that scale yet. Yeah. So I think that's, um, yeah. I think uh, when we've got um, uh, systems in the field and when we've got, um, yeah, when we've got a client base I, I, and, yeah, and a more, more longer term funding, I think that's when that starts to happen. But I think at the moment, 
it's too early for that. Mm -hmm. um, and th this development process, hardware development process, and particularly in the area that we're in, we were quite quick. We went from, um, from the idea of a product to a product in about 15 years, um, which for the software world is, um, is inconceivable, right? Everything that you've done has changed in that length of time. Uh, the semiconductor products, for example, they took about 40 years to, to develop. What about the sof software aspect of your product, though? It, you know, everything has software these days, doesn't it? Yes. Um, so we have software engineers working on two things, really. Um, well, several things, but well, one of them is on the system control side. So we've got a system much more complex than a car uh, with all the bits that have to be moved, lots of them to nano-precision. Um, and so we have a team of software engineers working on that. Um, and then there's also the software aspects of uh, data analysis and image development um, and visualization. So um, they're the kind of two aspects of it. Were you ever tempted to partner for those jobs or you felt it was necessary to keep it in-house? I mean, we did talk to people, but um, because it's so specific, um, it's just very, very difficult and, and cost prohibitive. Let's move on to a topic um, that's sort of, a, it's not centered on Cirrus XT, but perhaps utilizes the learning and your own background a little bit there. Um, is the process repeatable? And what parts are, of the process are the most difficult? How would you establish a, a, a process for allowing or enabling this to occur again with other research groups? Um, I think one fundamental thing is that there has to be a team of people that are prepared to, to focus almost entirely on developing the commercial activity and, and at least some of them to move with it. Uh, I think that's very difficult for academics to do. Academics are generally driven by their interests in academia, which is why they're there in the first place. And some of them go on to great success in the, in the startup world, that's for certain. Um, but I think if you wanted to make that process more straightforward, um, you would spend, or the focus could be more on enabling teams who have incentive and time and interest uh, to, to, to develop something and turn it into a company. I think that's, um, and, and they're typically uh, postdocs um, from a technical science side. I don't yeah, yeah. Um, now, let's say the, the, in the case here, you had this core group Mm. physics. Um, does this, can this work in a multidisciplinary setting? How would you enable that if it could? I, I don't really know. I mean, starting those initial conversations really is very difficult. And we tried a few times. So we tried to get people involved working with us from the MBA program here um, to start to look at um, some of the stuff that we were doing. This was back in the in the semiconductor light source side of things. Um, and it's, they're, they're too immiscible liquids sometimes. It's, you, you, you bring people together and it's just so very difficult to, to bridge that gap because neither side really knows what the other side doesn't know. Um, and those conversations for us were very difficult. Um, making the conversations more frequent, perhaps, um, and making them less formal. Um, having people at a, at a long physical distance from each other doesn't help. I suppose that's, that applies to the distance between... Um, the business school here and, and UCD and, and likewise with Nova, I suppose, um, that there are good reasons for having them separate sometimes, um, but that comes at a cost as well. So people don't tend to mix that much. Um, most of the physicists aren't talking to um, 
to business people. And that, and that really is a problem, yeah, because there's, there's almost complete ignorance um, on the science side about what the requirements of business are. It, that's interesting that you're, um, you di you've diagnosed a challenge and there are some, a lot of what you've mentioned, I think is addressable in some way. If there was going to be an initiative in the university to f prompt or enable this, how would you uh, establish that? Uh, what would it need? Money, always. Money? Yeah, money and money and other people's time because the people who are, the people, so the, the academics who are in a position to commercialize are, are already extremely busy. Um, giving them something else to do doesn't work. Um, so you have to, try and lubricate that to some extent by introducing new time, which is new people. Um, so unless there are people taking up some of that slack and doing some of that communication, then I don't think it will really happen. If you, if you suggest to somebody who's already run off their feet, and there's this, this could potentially benefit you in two or three years' time if you can engage with, um, with, with business people at this stage and people with a business background, they, they, their appetite may, for, may be there, but they just don't have time. Right. Um, and uh, in terms of your, your own biography, that money kind of washes around from the outside agencies, comes in from industry partners, mm -hmm. sort of chipping in for research projects. It does act as, a, as an incredible lubricant, as an enabler for the conversations to start. Yes, exactly, and, and yeah, and so my I realised when I came back into academia that I wasn't going to be able to work just strictly as an academic, um, because I, I'd gone out for seven years, uh, six or seven years, uh, and I wasn't be able to, going to be able to compete with the people that were there. And the thing that I could do to make myself useful as a soul uh, would be to look at raising money to start looking at commercialisation. And in that raising money, uh, we were able to develop a team of people who were able to start to do some of the stuff that was interesting. The, the existing team couldn't have done it. And so I had the time and the space and the encouragement to, to go and look for this money. And then I was very lucky to find the people that I found and we were very lucky at several steps along the way. And luck is such an enormous component. You, you've mentioned serendipity quite a few times. Well, it, yeah, absolutely. Um, does, does anyone have any questions they'd like to ask? Yes, hello, my name is Max. Um, Max. What is your business model at the moment? So you sell hardware or you have a subscription model? Oh. No, we'll sell hardware. So okay, we're selling so microscopes. They're, yeah. So there are approximately somewhere in the region of 3,000 uh, research institutes around the world, um, and they're our customers. And so we're engaging with an early adopter set from that. Um, and that's, um, that's who we, we work with first to sell these microscopes. To give you a rough idea, they're the order of 3 million euro microscopes. And that's broadly of... Um, it's similar to electron microscopes. So pretty much every um, research institute in, in the world now working in biology has electron microscopes and electron microscopy and spends millions on that. And our vision is to, to push our microscope uh, in the same way as electron microscopes were back in the 1980s, 90s. And, and it's not just universities who are the customers here, our independent research, corporates. Are. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so potentially uh, pharma companies and stuff like that as well. So to be able to figure out what happens when you change genes or what happens with uh, disease uh, on, on a cellular level is something that's very valuable for lots of people. Uh, but yeah, the idea is to sell them directly. Hi, I'm, I'm Liam. Uh, Hi, Liam. Just a question on, so when you sell this hardware to kind of corporates and uh, research centres, does it take 
do you have to send team members on to help train them up to use these uh, hardware systems? Because obviously it's uh, very bespoke and yeah. probably fairly complex, I'd say, to understand. Yeah, I suppose with the early adopters that we're working with, they have an experience already of imaging at Synchrotron. So we have that cohort of, of users uh, who are familiar um, and, in, and, and sufficiently driven um, to, to learn as we're learning to some extent. So we have to give them something functional, obviously. Uh, but yeah, and in the initial ones, we'll be sending support to help them to, um, uh, to use the system. Yeah, that's, that's kind of critical. Hi, my name is Sunil. Uh, initially, you said um, uh, from Enterprise Ireland, uh, you failed to secure the um, um, funding. But in second round, uh, you'll get that the 3.7 million. Oh, sorry, no, that was yeah. from the SME fund from the European Union. Yeah. So okay. there was a thing called the SME fund. I think it, I, I don't know if it was part of the European Innovation Council. I think that came slightly after it. But there, there's this innovation funding anyway. And it was, for, it was part of Framework 7 um, EU funding. So, so they, they, had, they had two calls with, the, with this funding. Um, so they had one in, if I remember correctly, one in January and one in June or something like that. I can't remember the, the details exactly. Okay, but uh, what could be the challenges involved in this? Um, in getting the money? Yeah, yeah. Understanding what you're supposed to write. So it's, it's, a, it's a funding proposal um, beauty contest to some extent, and you've got to understand what it is that they're looking for. Um, so that's, an, that's a process of digging into the documentation, um, getting advice from the local Enterprise Ireland people who are very good on, on this type of thing. So Ireland gets a significantly higher return um, from the EIC than its population would suggest, and that's because of a lot of the support that is available. Um, so understanding what the referee process is, understanding your own proposition, um, and understanding how that fits with, with their strategic uh, goals as well. Um, so that's, yeah, and that's why you get it wrong the first time. Um, and, and if I can add, it's not money for free at all. Um, it comes at a cost. Potentially, it comes at a diversionary cost because it might not be exactly what you needed to do. And then there's the administrative and participation costs. Yes. So um, the administrative costs actually they, they, they cover because they, they give you 25% uh, of the grants to cover that. Um, the cost could be that it might not be aligned with what you're doing. So, and that's, that often happens to companies applying for European funding. We were fortunate that we were able to more or less give them our, our actual business plan um, and they funded it. Um, so that was, that was kind of good. Um, and we were just really lucky. So, but generally, yes, they're absolutely valid points. And sometimes people can distract themselves, especially at a startup stage where money is scarce, they can distract themselves into trying to look for money that isn't aligned with what they're trying to do sufficiently. Um, and that doesn't necessarily help. But we've been, so COVID actually helped us significantly as well, because um, uh, when COVID um, uh, hit, the, hit the world, the EU uh, launched a program to fund COVID research. And so we had just started to work with um, virologists. And so we were, we were able to put together a proposal um, from some top European vi virologists who want to look at the, the transmission and infection pathways. And these are highly respected scientists and in their own fields who had were able to um, articulate what the need for this was. And so we were able to go and, and I think we got another 2.5 million um, euro grant on that. And that was a grant again. Um, and that grant helped us to develop the relationships with these um, 
with these virologists. Um, so, um, yes, yeah, so in fact, I think the total fund was about 5 million euro and 2.5 2 or thereabouts came to, to Sirius XT. But the, the fund allowed us to develop the relationships that are very difficult to develop otherwise because you need the lubrication of money. People don't have time. They need to be able to hire people to do this stuff. So they were able to, um, we were able to get some traction with people doing um, real imaging of viral problems that they need to solve. Uh, and so that, again, serendipitously turned out we were... Um, maybe not the only company, but we were certainly one of the companies for which COVID turned out to be useful. And, and that, all, that all helps the story, and that helped to, um, to continue the story then, where the EIC were able to give us uh, another uh, chunk of money in terms of uh, blended equity and grant funding. It's, it's funny you've um, kind of neutralized the line of uh, questioning for me here because the virtual engagement that you had during COVID enabled that aspect of the development of the business. Yeah. And yet we know, you know, anecdotally, certainly having um, the various functions of a university spread around various campuses and places acts as a, a, a sort of a disincentive. It, it doesn't enable um, the serendipitous uh, meetings between business people and science people, science people and other science people. Yeah. What would your ideal space look like if you were going to do this again and support another research group on their entrepreneurial pathway? Uh, I mean, I'd support them close to what... I mean, like, we were lucky to be where we were, close to the science. So taking us away somewhere else, um, away from the other scientists, wouldn't have helped. Bringing more business expertise in would, would have helped at an earlier stage. And we, and we did get some support, and we did get advice, and Enterprise Ireland were great in bringing mentors to us, for example, who could look at our business plan, which we were delighted with, and they'd say, that's rubbish, you'll never start a, you'll never start a business with that. Um, so we did get some, and we did go out and look for it. But in, in terms of a space, I think there's a danger in trying to create a space um, like that because it doesn't contain a lot of the expertise that's local around the technology space where the stuff is developing anyway. Okay, so an artificial sort of cohab lab setup wouldn't really be the ideal. Some space within the close environs of where the technology is developing anyway um, and some encouragement for that space to be used like that would be useful, yeah. Um, but but taking it, moving it away, which I think seems to uh, seems to happen, um, it's seen as a good idea to take the spin out away and, and, and remove it from the, the, the umbilical cord of, of, its, of its scientific base. For, for some things, maybe that works. Um, for us, it wouldn't have. Um, now, we did need to move eventually, uh, and the company is now up in Sandyford, um, and had to develop labs up there at significant cost, which would have been prohibitive at, at an early stage. Um, and there certainly wouldn't be the space on a campus for that normally. No, um, no. So that's an inevitable stage in your in the growth of yeah. Uh, it's your adolescence, let's say, um, leaving home for the first time. Yeah, but but to try and so I mean I, I think at an earlier stage and maybe there's different stages, uh, different spaces are useful. So maker spaces I think are familiar um, in in lots of places. Uh, one of the things that I am working on with Professor Pori Dunn in physics is and and this is part of a new um, science uh, building development program that we're we're developing actual space for postdocs to try and uh, get a few months, maybe six months to a year of funding and breathing room uh, to try and think about business opportunities that they might develop for without being massively prescriptive on them. So that would just give them space and some basic facilities uh, to think. 
Um, and that needs to be lubricated with funding then. So um, that's something we're working on. Yeah, I can definitely see a role for uh, business students being the analysts pre preparing reports or market research for some of these. And, and in a space like that, you can absolutely see how if it was possible to if it was possible to interest the people on the business side to get involved in those conversations, that would be very useful, yeah. On the idea of serendipity, um, what's the role of, was there a role for conferences, either academic or industry? Uh, yes, I mean, all the way along. From the light source development side, um, yes, going to conferences and seeing what's out there in the world, getting feedback from people, uh, having ideas and bouncing them off people and... Again, um, yeah, that was that that was always useful. Now the the primary interest of conferences is, is that's where our customers are. Uh, so customers, the and certainly the early stage customers, are going to conferences because they want to show their scientific and biological developments, their understanding of particular disease processes and stuff like that. So they they have a, a burning requirement to to do that, and and we have tools that can help them to do that. And so going and selling ourselves, and in fact, um, Ken Fahey has done most of the, of the work on that in terms of um, uh, developing the links with the conferences and with specific, um, very targeted conferences to work with the organizers to give ourselves a presence there. Um, so that's, that, yeah, that's, that's critical. They're, they're, they're the scientific version of the trade fair, I suppose. It's yeah, yeah, and crucial for making personal connections. Yeah, because you absolutely need to have champions to move this kind of thing. Somebody needs to believe that they need what you have and that you can do what they want. Um, and and the apocryphally, I, the, the story of somebody um, randomly going to a conference and mentioning that they happen to know a narrow piece of science and somebody r randomly walking past saying, well, that could be applied in a completely different area. That happens. It does, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. 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 Um, so getting yourself out there is important. Um, yeah. Yes. You're more. You're more likely to. Um, yeah. Serendipity is more likely in person. I think in general. Yeah. Yeah. If you had an ideal, is there an ideal structure to address that um, issue of having the organisation talk to itself? As you mentioned before, the university has these multiple campus sites, different specialisms that don't talk to each other. Is there a, a weekly meetup? kind of thing or a, a sort of um is there a way for the university to act as a coordinating mechanism for these disparate groups to come together well i don't think it could be weekly i think i think everybody is so stretched right i i'd have to think about that how would you do that i mean i think it would have to involve more people okay it would have to involve yeah it would have to involve somebody or people whose job it was to try and make those links. And, and, the TT, and the TTO does that to some extent, but not, it doesn't really connect people yeah. in, the, in the business side here with, uh, with scientists, I don't well, think. Maybe we should M have Maybe a... I'm wrong there, and I, and I don't know enough either. Yeah, no, so no. I suppose I should have caveated everything I said by uh, it's a very narrow vision through, through my eyes. Well, thank you very much, Fergal, for um, uh, sharing your time with us today and your experience and, and learning. Thank you. Thanks for listening.
Thank you for listening. The music used is Voltaic Fluctuations by Ben Prunty and used with his permission. 